I only trained probably two or three weeks for this fight. I had to bury my best friend, and I wasn't going to fight. But I dedicate this fight to him. I was going to rip his heart out. I'm the best ever. I'm the most brutal, and the most vicious, and the most ruthless champion there has been. There's no one who could stop me. Lennox is a conqueror. No, I am Alexander. He is no Alexander. I'm the best ever. There has never been anybody as ruthless. I'm Sonny Liston. I'm Jack Dempsey. There's no one like me. I am from their cloth. There was no one who could match me. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable and ferocious. I want your heart. I want you to eat your children. Praise be to Allah. I was a titan, the reincarnation of Alexander the Great. It's amazing how a low self-esteem and a huge ego can give you delusions of grandeur. Welcome to the Goat Pod. I'm your host, Dr. Dev. And today we'll be going over the game tape of Mike Tyson. Um, it's from the biography, The Undisputed Truth, an autobiography uh, by Mike Tyson himself. And man, he is an amazing writer. I, I could not put that book down. I, I genuinely felt like this book deserved two. So the podcast is going to be broken down to two sessions. The first one is going to be this week and then the following next week. And I'm patterning it based off the model and the anti-model. The model is what we'll be studying and focusing on and what we're going to try to extract the essences from. And the anti-model is more so what not to do. And that is often the peril of being a legend or a conqueror. There's usually some aspect of your life you end up fucking up in the process. So I think it's good to go over both. Therefore, we can kind of identify what are the characteristics and traits that we can best apply. Um, just maybe a note on the podcast in itself is how to best use it. Last week, we talked about the concept of the second self. And in my opinion, the best way to use it and the way I've been personally using it is every morning, I'll have a little document of what I call just my second self. And based on the characteristics that I find admirable in these legends and conquerors, I'll write them down. So for example, Giannis made a comment last week where he said, I want to be the hardest worker in the room. And uh, Kobe Bryant also mentioned uh, to him that we should continuously focus on having a childlike mindset. And these are some of the characteristics that I'm continuously weaving into my second self. Think of the second self as almost like an alter ego, like Eddie Brock and Venom from the Spider-Man series. Eventually, as you continue your journey throughout life, and as we continue to study the greats, you'll have a better idea of the heroes and characteristics that you want to emulate. Um, and that's why it's also important, I believe, to study the downfalls as well and the characteristics we don't want because with every characteristic that we desire to extract from a great there comes a negative characteristic for example many of the greats have bad relationships and i'm assuming most of you don't want to have a bad relationship and most of you want to achieve whatever you you have set out without fucking up the relationships in the process and being a fucking hurricane Anyways, we're, today we're going to start talking about the model. There's going to be a little bit of backstory, and I think that backstory of Mike is important because it'll 
give a foundation for both the model and anti-model, and it'll help us explain why he turned out the way he did and why he was able to become a legend, but also why he ended up losing everything in the process. I often say that I was the bad seed in the family, but when I think about it, I was really a meek kid for most of my childhood. I was born in Cumberland Hospital in the Fort Greene section of Brooklyn, New York on June 30th, 1966. My earliest memories were of being in the hospital. I was always sick with lung problems. One time, to get some attention, I put my thumb in some Drano and then put it in my mouth. They rushed me to the hospital. I remember my, go- I remember my godmother gave me a toy gun while I was there, but I think I broke it right away. I don't know much about my father's family. In fact, I didn't really know my father much at all, or the man I was told my father was. On my birth certificate, it said my father was Purcell Tyson. The only problem was my brother, my sister, and I never met this guy. We were all told that our biological father was uh, Jimmy Curly Kirkpatrick Jr., but he was barely in the picture. As time went on, I heard rumors that Curly was a pimp and that he used to extort ladies. And all of a sudden, he started calling himself a deacon in the church. That's why every time I hear someone referring to themselves as a reverend, I say reverend slash pimp. When you really think about it, these religious guys have charisma of a pimp. They get anybody in the church to do whatever they want. So to me, it's always, yeah, bishop slash pimp, reverend slash pimp. When my mother had some money, she'd splurge. She was a great facilitator, and she'd always have girlfriends over and a bunch of men too. Everyone would always be drinking. She didn't smoke much marijuana. All her friends did. So she supplied them with drugs. My mother's friends were all prostitutes, or at least women who would sleep with men for money. No high level or even street level stuff. They would drop their kids off at our house before they went to meet their men. When they'd come to pick up their kids, they'd have some blood on their clothes. So my mom would help clean them up. I came home one day and there was this white baby in the house. What the fuck is this shit? I thought. But that was just my life back then. There was a recession and my mom lost her job. And we got evicted out of our nice apartment in Bed-Stuy. They came and took all our furniture and put it outside on the sidewalk. The three of us kids had to sit down on it and protect it so that nobody took it while my mother was trying to find a spot for us to stay. I was sitting there and some kids from the neighborhood came up and said, Mike, why is your furniture out there? We told them we were just moving. So they gave us some food. We wound up in Brownsville. Brownsville is essentially his home. And that's what Mike refers to constantly through the book. He says he's from Brownsville. You could totally feel the difference. The people were louder, more aggressive. It was very horrific, tough, and a gruesome kind of place. My mother wasn't used to hanging around these particular types of aggressive black people, and she appeared to be intimidated, and so were my brother and sister and me. Everything was hostile. There was never a subtle moment. Cops were always driving by with sirens on. Ambulances always coming up to pick somebody. Guns always going off. People getting stabbed. Windows being broken. One day, my brother and I even got robbed in front of our own apartment. We used to watch these guys shooting it out with one another. It was like something out of an old Edward G. Robinson movie. We would watch and say, wow, this is happening in real life? One day, a guy pulled me off the street 
took me into an abandoned building, and then tried to molest me. I never really felt safe on those streets. After a while, we weren't even safe in our own apartment. My mother started drinking heavily. She never got another job. And I remember waiting in those long lines with my mother down at the welfare center. We'd wait and wait for hours. And then then we'd be right up front. And it was five o'clock and they closed the fucking shit on you. Just like in the movies. We kept getting evicted in Brownsville too. That happened quite a few times. Every now and then we get a decent spot, crashing for a short time and with friends or a boyfriend of my mother's. But for the most part, every time we moved, the conditions got worse from being poor to being serious poor to being fucked up poor. Eventually, we lived in condemned buildings with no heat, no water, and maybe some electricity. In the wintertime, all four of us slept in the same bed to keep warm. We'd stay there until a guy would come and kick us out. My mother would do whatever she had to do to keep a roof over our heads. That meant oftentimes sleeping with someone that she didn't really care for. That's just the way it was. She'd never take us to a homeless shelter. So we'd just move into another abandoned building. It was so traumatic. But what could you do? This is what I hate about myself. What I learned from my mother. There was nothing you wouldn't do to survive. Or perhaps a better way to go about it is there was no low that you'd be willing to go to. I was a mama's boy when I was young. I always slept with my mother. My sister and my brother had their own rooms, but I slept with my mother until I was 15. One time, my mother slept with a man while I was in bed with her. She probably thought I was asleep. I'm sure it had an impact on me, but that's just how it was. I got booted to the couch when her boyfriend, Eddie Gilson, came into the picture. They had a really dysfunctional love affair. I guess that's why my relationships were so strange. They drink, fight, and fuck, break up, and then drink, fight, and fuck some more. They were truly in love, even if it was a really sick love. If I was scared to be in the house, I was also scared to go outside. By then, I was going to public school, and that was a nightmare. I was a pudgy kid, very shy, almost effeminate shy. I spoke with a lisp. The kids used to call me little fairy boy because I was always hanging out with my sister. My mother told me that I had to stay around Denise because she was older and she'd watch me. They also used to call me Dirty Ike or Dirty Motherfucker because I didn't know much about hygiene then. We didn't have hot water to shower in and if the gas wasn't on, we couldn't even boil water. My mother tried to teach me, but I still didn't do a good job. She used to take soap in a bucket and fill it up with hot water and wash me. But when you're a kid, you don't care about hygiene. My school was right around the corner from our apartment, but sometimes my mother would be passing out from drinking the night before and wouldn't walk me to school. He was about six, seven at this time. It was then that the kids would uh, always hit me and kick me. They were like, get the fuck out of here, you like nasty motherfucker. I would constantly get abused. They'd punch me in the face and I'd run. Don't beat me up. Leave me alone. Stop, I'd say. I still feel like a coward to this day because of that bullying. It's a wild feeling, being that helpless. You never forget that feeling. That day, a guy took my glasses and put them in a gas tank. That was the last day I went to school. That was the end of my formal education. I was seven years old and I never went back to class. Around this time, he meets a a dude named Berkham 
um, who was just a few years older than him. Bergman was the guy who introduced me into the life of crime. Before that, I never stole anything. Not a loaf of bread. Not a piece of candy. Nothing. I had no antisocial tendencies. I didn't have the nerve. But Barkham explained to me that if you looked good, people would treat you with respect. If you had the newest fashion, the finest stuff, you were a cool dude. You'd have status. I went with him, and we started breaking into people's houses. He told me to go through the windows that were too small for him to fit in. And I went in and opened the door for him. After the robberies, he took me and bought me some nice clothes and sneakers and a sheepskin coat. It was like I was a different person. It was incredible. My life reminded me of Oliver Twist with the other guy, Fagin, teaching all this stuff. He bought me a lot of clothes, but he never gave me a lot of money. He made a couple thousand from robbing and he gave me 200. But at eight years old, 200 was a lot of money. Sometimes he'd take out a piece of jewelry that we stole and then we borrow it for a few days. We go to school, eat breakfast, and then we get on a bus and train and start robbing during school hours. That was the beginning of me feeling like I belonged. We were all equal as long as we put in our share of the robbery proceeds. I was a little kid looking for love and acceptance, and the streets are where I found it. It was the only education I had, and the streets were my teachers. After about a year, I started doing burglaries by myself. It was pretty lucrative. But hanging in the streets and jostling was more exciting than robbing houses. You'd grab some ladies' jewelries and cops would chase you. Or what we'd call heroes. Would come in and try to rescue the day. It was more risk-taking for less money, but we loved the thrill. You normally had to have a partner to be a successful jostler. Sometimes it wouldn't even be planned. But you'd see someone you knew, so you'd team up. Even though I was starting to look the role, I never could get it on with the girls. I liked girls, but I didn't know how to tell them. I One time, I was watching these girls jump rope, and I liked them, and I wanted to jump rope with them, so I started teasing them, and out of nowhere, these girls in the fifth grade started beating the shit out of me. I was playing with them, but they were serious, and I was just taken by surprise. I, I got serious about fighting back too late. By then, somebody came and broke it up, and they'd have gotten the best of me. I didn't even want to fight them then. Growing up, I always wanted to be the center of attention. I always wanted to be the guy talking shit. I'm the baddest motherfucker out here. I got the best birds. Uh, he loved pigeons and he had his own. It's supposedly a Brownsville thing to really be into pigeons. Ugh. I wanted to be that street guy. The fly, slick talking guy. But I was just too shy and awkward. When I tried to talk that way, Somebody would hit me in the head and say, shut the fuck up. But I got a taste of what it was like to bask in the adulation of an audience when I first got into my first street fight. Give me my bird back, I protested. Gary, uh, one of his bullies, pulled the bird out from under his coat. You want the bird? You want the fucking bird? He said. Then he just twisted the bird's head off and threw it at me, smearing the blood all over my face and shirt. Fight him, Mike, one of my friends urged. Don't be afraid, just fight him. So I decided, fuck it. My friends were shocked. I didn't know what I was doing, but I threw some wild punches and one connected and Gary went down. After I dropped Gary, my stupid ass started skipping. It just seemed like the fly thing to do. I had practically the whole block watching my gloriful moment. 
Everybody started whooping and applauding me. It was an incredible feeling, even though my heart was beating out of my chest. This black dude is skipping, man. One guy laughed. I was trying to do the ollie shuffle to no avail. But I felt good about standing up for myself. And I liked the rush of everyone applauding me and slapping fives. I guess underneath that shyness, I was always an explosive, entertaining guy. I started getting a whole new level of respect on the streets. Instead of, can Mike play with us? People would ask my mother, can Mike Tyson play with us? Other guys would always bring their guys around to fight me, and they bet money on the outcome. Now, I had another source of income. They'd come from, my, they'd come from other neighborhoods. I'd win a lot. Even if I lost, the guys who would beat me would say, fuck, you're only 11? I began to, I began to exact some revenge for the beatings I'd taken from bullies. I'd be walking with some friends, and I might see one of those guys who beat me up and bullied me years earlier. The guy who took my glasses and threw them away, I beat him in the streets like a fucking dog for humiliating me. He may, have ne- he may have forgotten about it, but I never did. With this newfound confidence in my ability to stand up for myself, my criminality escalated. It became way more brazen. I even began stealing in my own neighborhood. I thought that's what people did. I didn't understand the rules of the streets. I thought everybody was fair game because I sure seemed to be fair game to everybody else. I didn't know that there were certain people you just don't fuck with. It felt incredible. I didn't care if I grabbed somebody's chain and dragged them down the stairs with their head bouncing, boom, boom, boom. Do I care? No. I need that chain. I didn't know anything about compassion. Why should I? No one ever showed me any compassion. The only compassion I had was when somebody shot or stabbed one of my friends during a robbery. Then I was sad. I knew there was a chance I would get killed, but I didn't care. I didn't think I'd live to see 16 anyways, so why not go hard? My brother Rodney told someone recently, that he thought I was the most courageous guy he knew. But I didn't consider myself courageous. I had brave friends. Friends who would get shot over their jewelry or watches or motorcycles. They weren't giving up when people were robbing them. Those people had the most respect in the neighborhoods. I don't know if I had courage, but I had witnessed courage. I always thought that I was much more crazy than courage. I was shooting at people out in the open while my mother looked out the window. I was brainless. Rodney was thinking it was courage, but it was a lack of brain power. I was an extremist. The adjective extremist is something he uses constantly throughout the book. And clearly now we're slowly starting to build that picture that he was an insecure kid who suddenly had this newfound power and that power gave him status. And at this point, I think all he ever wanted was that. He just wanted that power. I think an important note with that is to distinguish the type of power you want and why you want that power. It's important because power can come in many different ways. And I think if you have a certain desire, if you don't specifically acknowledge what you want, it can become never ending. And maybe we can use an example from last week's episode of Giannis. What Giannis deeply desired was to get his family out of poverty. And I think that, and, and, and it's quite a beautiful desire because there aren't inherently any downsides with that desire. With Giannis, while he was able to achieve that desire, it never felt like enough for him. But the downsides of that was instead of just getting to the NBA, that pushed him further to becoming an MVP. And 
after that, that pushed him to win a championship. And after that, he's desired to win another championship. So the repercussions aren't negative per se, because his desire was to get his family out of poverty and continuously to make sure they never get back into it. Mike is a lot different. Mike desires power, but I don't think he explicitly knows what type of power he wants. The problem with the act he's keeping up right now is he can only keep it up for so long before he got caught. So he was pretty much essentially going in and out of juvie at that point. Once I got into the court system, I had to go to a court-mandated special ed crazy school. Special ed was like jail. Spofford was a juvenile detention center located in the Hunts Point section of the Bronx. I had heard horror stories about Spofford. People getting beaten up by other inmates or by the staff. So I wasn't too thrilled to be going there. During one of my visits, uh, we were all brought to an assembly room where we watched a movie called The Greatest about Muhammad Ali. After the movie, uh, guess who walks out? Ali surprised the kids in the juvie hall. As soon as I saw him walk out, I thought, I want to be that guy. He talked to us and it was inspirational. I had no idea what I was doing with my life, but I knew that I wanted to be like him. Right then, I decided I wanted to be great. I didn't know what it is that I'd do, but I decided that I wanted people to look at me like I was on show, the same way they do to Ali. Don't get me wrong. I didn't get out of Spofford and do a 360. I was still a little sewer rat. My situation at home was deteriorating. I never saw my mother happy with me or proud of me doing something. I never got a chance to talk to her or know her. Professionally, that would have no effect on me. But emotionally and psychologically, it was crushing. You'd think if she let me sleep in her bed until I was 15, she would have liked me. But she was drunk all the time. I was going to one of my classes one day when this guy walked by me in the hall. He was acting all tough, like he was a killer. And when he passed by, he saw that I was holding my hat in my hand. So he started pulling on it and he kept walking. I don't know him, but he disrespected me. Pay attention for a sec. For truly the, the savage that Mike is, I sat in the class for the next whole 45 minutes thinking about how I was going to kill this guy for tugging on my hat. When the class was over, I walked out and saw him and his friends at the door. So I attacked him ferociously. They handcuffed me and sent me to Elmwood, which was a lockdown cottage for incorrigible kids. On the weekends, all the kids from Elmwood who earned credits would go away for a few hours and then would come back with broken noses, cracked teeth, busted mouths, and bruised ribs. They were all jacked up. I just thought they were getting beat up by the staff. Back then, nobody would call the health department or social services if staff were hurting the kids. Yeah, man, we almost got him. We almost got him. They laughed. I had no idea what they were talking about. And then they told me they were boxing Mr. Stewart, one of the counselors. Bobby Stewart was a tough Irish guy, around 170, who had been a professional boxer. He was a national amateur champ. When I was in the hole, staff members told me that there was an ex-boxing champ teaching kids how to box. The staff members that told me about him 
were really nice to me. I want to meet him because I thought he'd be nice too. I was in my room one night when there was a loud, intimidating knock on the door. I opened the door and it was Mr. Stewart. Hey, asshole. I heard you wanted to talk to me, he growled. I want to be a fighter, I said. So do the rest of the guys, but they don't have the balls to work to be a fighter, he said. Maybe if you straighten your act up and stop being such an asshole and show some respect around here, I'll work with you. So I really started to apply myself. I think I'm the stupidest guy in the world when it comes to scholastics, but I got my honor roll star and I said yes sir and no ma'am to everyone, just being a model citizen so I could go over there and fight Stuart. I immediately start flailing and throwing a bunch of punches and he covered up. I'm punching him and slugging him and then suddenly he slips by me and goes boom. He hits me right in the stomach. I threw up everything I had eaten for the last two years. What the fuck was that? I was thinking. I didn't know anything about boxing back then. Now I know that if you hit in the stomach, you're just going to lose your breath for a couple seconds, but it comes back. I didn't know that then. I really thought I wouldn't ever be able to breathe again and I'd die. I was desperately trying to breathe, but all I could do was throw up and it was horrible shit. Get up. Walk it off, he barked. After everyone left, I approached him real humble. Excuse me, sir. Can you teach me how to do that? I asked. I'm thinking that when I go back to Brownsville and hit a motherfucker in the stomach like that, he's going to go down. And be able to run his pockets. That's where my mind was back then. He must have seen something in me that he liked, because after our second session, he said to me, Would you like to do this for real? So we started training regularly. And after workouts, I'd go back to my room and shadow box all night. I started to get a lot better. I didn't know it at the time, but during one of our sparring sessions, I hit Bobby with a jab and broke his nose and almost knocked him out. He had the next week off, so we just let it heal at home. Shortly after that, Bobby came to me with an idea. I want to bring you to see this legendary boxing trainer, Customato. He can take you to the next level. What the heck is going on here? I asked. I didn't trust anybody but Bobby Stewart at that particular time. Now, he's going to transfer me over to another person? Just trust this man, he told me. Cuss looked exactly how you'd envision a hard-boiled boxing trainer to look like. He was short and stout, with a bald head, and you could see that he was strong. He even talked tough, and he was dead serious. There wasn't a happy muscle in his face. How you doing? I'm Cuss, he introduced himself. He had a strong Bronx accent. He was with a younger trainer named Teddy Atlas. Bobby and I got into the ring and started sparring. I started out strong really knocking Bobby around the ring. We would usually do three rounds, but in the middle of the second round, Bobby hit me in the nose with a couple rights and I started bleeding. It didn't really hurt. Blood was all over my face. That's enough, Atlas said. But sir, please let me finish this round and go one more round. That's what we normally do. I pleaded. I wanted to impress Cuss. I guess I had. When we got out of the ring, Cuss's first words to Bobby were, that's the heavyweight champion of the world. Right after the sparring session, we went to Cuss's house for lunch. He lived in a big white Victorian house on 10 acres. 
You could see the Hudson River from the porch. There were towering maple trees and large rose bushes on the side of the house. I'd never seen a house like that in my life. We sat down and Cus told me he couldn't believe I was only 13 years old. And then he told me what my future would be. He had seen me spar not only for six minutes, but he said it in a way that was like law. You look splendid, he said. You're a great fighter. It was a compliment after compliment. If you listen to me, I can make you the youngest heavyweight champion of all time. Fuck. How could you know that shit? I thought he was just a pervert. In the world I came from, people do shit like that when they want to perv out on you. I didn't know what to say. I had never heard anyone say nice things about me before. I wanted to stay around this old guy because I liked the way he made me feel. I'd later realized that this was Cus's psychology. You give a weak man some strength and he becomes addicted. I was sitting with a bunch of Cus's roses in my lap. I'd never seen roses in person, only on television. But I wanted some because they looked so exquisite. I wanted to have something nice to take back with me, so I asked him if I could take some. Between the smell of the roses and Cus's words ringing in my ear, I felt good, like the whole world had changed. In that one moment, I knew I was going to be somebody. I think he likes you, Bobby said. If you're not a prick and an asshole, this will go all well. I could tell Bobby was happy for me. I got back to the cottage, aka the juvie, and put the roses in water. Cus had given me a huge boxing encyclopedia to look at, and I didn't sleep that whole night. I just read the book. I read about Benny Leonard, and Harry Greb, and Jack Johnson. I got turned out real bad. I wanted to be just like those guys. They looked like they had no rules. They worked hard, but on their downtime, they lounged, and people came to them like they were gods. I started out going to Cus's house every weekend to work out. I work with Teddy in the gym, and then I stay over at Cus's house. There were a few other fighters living there with Cus and his companion, a sweet Ukrainian lady named Camille Ewald. When I first started going to Cus's, he didn't even let me box. After I finished my workout with Teddy, Cus would sit me down and we'd talk. He'd talk about my feelings and emotions and about the psychology of boxing. He wanted to reach me at the root. We talked about the spiritual aspects of the game. If you don't have the spiritual warrior in you, you'll never be a fighter. I don't care how big or strong you are, he told me. We talked about the pretty abstract concepts, but he was getting through to me. Cus knew how to talk my language. He'd grew up in a tough neighborhood, and he'd been a street kid too. The first thing Cuss talked to me about was fear and how to overcome it. Your mind is not your friend, Mike. I hope you know that. You have to fight with your mind. Control it. Put it in its place. You have to control your emotions. Fatigue in the ring is 90% psychological. It's just the excuse of a man who wants to quit. The night before a fight, you won't sleep. Don't worry, the other guy didn't either. You'll go to the weigh-in, and he'll look much bigger than you, and calmer, like ice. But he's burning up with fear inside. Your imagination is going to credit him with abilities he doesn't have. Remember, motion release tension. The moment the bell rings and you come into contact with each other, suddenly, your opponent seems like everybody else. 
because now your imagination has dissipated. The fight itself is the only reality that matters. You have to learn how to impose your will and take control over that reality. I can listen to Cuss talk for hours, and I did. Cuss talked to me about the importance of acting intuitively and impersonally and in a relaxed manner so as to keep all my emotions and feelings from blocking what I intuitively knew. He told me that he was talking about that once with the great writer Norman Mailer. Cuss, you don't know it, but you practice Zen, Mailer had told Cuss. Then he gave him a book called Zen in the Heart of Archery. Cuss used to read that book to me. He told me that he had actually experienced the ultimate emotional detachment in his first fight. Cuss told me that to be a great fighter, you had to get out of your head. He would sit me down, and then he'd say, transcend, focus, relax, until you see yourself looking at yourself. Tell me when you get there. That was very important for me. I'm way too emotional in general. Later on, I realized that if I didn't separate my feelings inside the ring, I would be sunk. I might hit a guy with a hard punch and then get scared if he didn't go down. This was a strong believer that in your mind, you had to be the entity that you wanted to be. If you wanted to be a heavyweight champion of the world, you had to start living the life of a heavyweight champion. I was only 14, but I was a true believer in Cuss's philosophy. Always training, thinking like a Roman gladiator, being in a perpetual state of war in your mind, yet, on the outside, seeming calm and relaxed. He was practicing and teaching me the law of attraction without even knowing it. Cuss was also big on affirmations. He had a book called Self-Mastery Through Conscious Autosuggestion by the French pharmacist-slash-psychologist named Emile Coué. Coué would tell his patients to repeat to themselves, every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better, over and over again. Cuss had us modify the affirmations for our own situations. So he had me saying, the best fighter in the world. Nobody can beat me, the best fighter in the world. Nobody can beat me over and over again all day. I loved doing that. I loved hearing myself talk about myself. The goal of these techniques was to build confidence in the fighter. Confidence was everything. But in order to possess that confidence, you had to test yourself and put yourself on the line. It doesn't come from osmosis, out of the air. It comes from consistently going over the visualization in your mind to help you develop the confidence that you want to possess. Cuss laid this all out for me in the first few weeks when we were together. He gave me the whole plan. He gave me the mission. I was going to be the youngest heavyweight champion of all time. I didn't know that then, but after one of our first talks, Cuss confided in Camille. Camille, this is the one I've been waiting for my whole life. I was getting close to being paroled back to Brooklyn when Bobby Stewart came to see me one day. I don't want you going back to Brooklyn. I'm afraid you may do something stupid or get yourself killed or get yourself locked up again. Do you want to move in with Cuss? I didn't want to go back either. I was looking for a change in my life. Plus, I liked the way these people talked and made me feel. Made me feel like I was part of society. So I talked to my mother about staying up there with Cuss. Ma, I want to go up there and train. I want to be a fighter. I can be the best fighter in the world. Cuss had my mind so fucked up. That's all he talked to me about. How great I could become. How to improve myself. Day by day. Every way. All that self-help shit. 
So I moved in with Cus and Camille and the other fighters in the house. I got to know more and more about Cus. Because we'd have these long talks after I trained. He was so happy when I told him about my hard luck stories, about my life. He'd light up like a Christmas tree. Tell me more, he'd say. I was a perfect guy for his mission. Broken home, unloved, destitute. I was hard and strong and sneaky, but I was still a blank chalkboard. Cuss wanted me to embrace my shortcomings. He didn't make me feel ashamed or inferior because of my upbringing. He loved the fact that I had great enthusiasm. I was this useless, Thor-resigned out black dude who was diagnosed as retarded, and this old white guy gets hold of me and gives me an ego. He was so cold hard, giving it to me like a bitter black man would. They think they're better than you, Mike, he'd say, if he saw somebody with a Fiat or a Rolls Royce. He'd look at me and say, you could get that. That's not the hardest thing in the world to do. Get wealthy. You're so superior to those people. They can never do what you're capable of. You got it in you. You think I'd tell you this if you didn't have it in you? I could probably make you a better fighter, but I couldn't make you a champion. I always thought it was shit. My mother told me it was crap. Nobody had ever said anything good about me. And here's this dude saying, I bet if you try, you could win an Oscar. You'd just be as good as an actor as you'd be as a boxer. You want to be a race car driver? I bet you'd be the best race car driver in the world. You're smarter and tougher than those guys. You could conquer any world. Don't use that word can't. You can't say can't. Cuss wouldn't let me fail. When I felt like quitting and got discouraged, he just kept on inspiring me. Cuss would always say, my job is to peel off layers and layers of damage that are inhibiting your true ability to grow and fulfill your potential. He'd see me sparring with an older guy, and it was in my mind that I was tired and I wasn't punching back at the guy. The guy was just bullying me. And Cuss would talk to me about that, make me confront my fears. He was a perfectionist. Cuss wanted the meanest fighter that God ever created. Someone who scared the life out of people before they even entered the ring. He trained me to be totally ferocious in the ring and out. At the time, I needed that. I was so insecure, so afraid. I was so traumatized from people picking on me when I was younger. I just hated the humiliation of being bullied. That feeling sticks with you for the rest of your life. It's such a bad feeling, a hopeless feeling. That's why I always projected to the world that I was mean, a ferocious motherfucker. This gave me that confidence so I didn't have to worry about ever being bullied again. I knew nobody was ever going to fuck with me physically. This was more than a boxing trainer. He instilled so many values in me. He was like some guru, always saying things that would make me think. No matter what anyone says, no matter the excuse or explanation, whatever person does in the end is what he intended to do all along. Or, I'm not a creator. What I do is discover and uncover. My job is to take the spark and fan it, feed the fire until it becomes a roaring blaze. He could impart wisdom in the most mundane of situations. Camille was very big on the boys doing their chores around the house. I hated chores. I was so focused on my boxing. One day, Cus came to me. You know, Camille really wants you to do your chores. I could care less if you did. But you should do them because it'll make you a better boxer. How is taking out the trash going to make me a better boxer? I scoffed. Because doing something you hate, like you love it, is good conditioning for someone aspiring towards greatness. After that, Camille never had to remind me to do my chores again.
Mike was on Joe Rogan's pod a few years ago, and he gave a quote, and I finally understand where that quote came from. It was a derivation of this line. Mike said, discipline is doing what you hate to do, but nonetheless, doing it like you love it. This was always dead serious, never smiling. He made me feel like we had a mission to accomplish, training day in and day out, thinking about one fucking thing. He gave me a purpose. I had never had that feeling in my life, except when I was thinking about stealing. A famous boxer, Wildred Benitez, came to train in the gym, and he brought his championship belt with him. Mike then says, man, Tommy, look at this. It's the bell, man. I got to get one of these now. I'm going to train so hard. If I win this, I'm never going to take it off. If you think about it, that's exactly what Giannis said. Giannis pointed to a Bulls jersey and said, I'm going to have one of these one day. Once again, that's the the maxim of belief comes before ability. We're starting to see it again. A lot of people assume that Ali was my favorite boxer, but I have to say it was Roberto Duran. I always looked at Ali at being so handsome and articulate, and I was short and ugly, and I had a speech impediment. When I saw Duran fight, he was just a street guy. He'd say stuff to his opponents like, suck my fucking dick, you motherfucker. Next time, you're going to the fucking moor after he beat Sugar Ray Leonard in that first fight. Man, this guy's me, I thought. That was what I wanted to do. He was not ashamed of being who he was. I related to him as a human being. As my career progressed and people started praising me for being a savage, I knew that being called an animal was the highest praise I could receive from someone. By the time I'd moved in with Cuss, I was already into the flow of his repertoire. He began to train me hard every day. I never had the privilege of enjoying boxing as a sport or something to do for fun. Cuss was an extremist, but I was just as extreme. I wanted to be Achilles right then. Funny enough, he did become Achilles with an Achilles heel. I was the kid who had no hope, but if you give me a glimmer of hope, you're in trouble. I take to the moon. I think both of us realized we were in a race with time. Cus was in his 70s, and he was no spring chicken, so he'd be constantly shoving all the knowledge into me. I was doing this to become a heavyweight champion of the world. Cus was aware of that. God, I wish I had more time with you, he'd say. But then he would say, I've been in the fight game for 60 years, and I've never seen anybody with this kind of interest you have. You're always talking about fighting. Cus normally had to wake up the fighters in the morning. When he'd get up to do it, I'd already come back from running. Cus would usually set the table for breakfast, but I started doing it after my run. He'd get so mad. Who made up my table? He'd bark. He was upset that I showed more dedication than he did. I was an extremist. If we got snowed in, Cus trained me in the house. At night, I'd stayed up for hours in my room shadow boxing. My life depended on succeeding. If I didn't, I'd be a useless piece of shit. Plus, I was doing it for Cus too. He had a tough life with a lot of disappointments, so I was here to defend this old man's ego and pride. Who the fuck did I think I was? When I wasn't training, I was watching old fight films for at least 10 hours a day. That was my treat on the weekend. I'd watch them alone upstairs all night long. I'd crank up the volume, and the sound would travel through the old house. Then, Cuss would come up. What the hell are you doing? Just watching films, I said. Hey, you gotta get to bed. People are sleeping, he'd say. 
Then he'd walk down the stairs and I'd hear him muttering, I've never met a kid like this. Watching the films all night, waking up the goddamn house. I was so focused sometimes that I'd actually go to sleep with my gloves on. I was an animal, dreaming about Mike Tyson being a big time fighter. I sacrificed everything for that goal. No women, no food. I had an eating disorder. I was addicted to food then. I was going through the puberty and I was getting acne. My hormones were raging. All I wanted to do was eat ice cream, but I couldn't lose sight of my goal. I talked to Cuss about girls and he poo-pooed me, telling me that I was going to have all the women I ever wanted. One time, I was morose. Cuss, I ain't ever going to have a girl, huh? Cuss then sent someone out and they came back with one of those miniature baseball bats and he presented it to me. You're going to have so many girls, you'll need this to beat them off of you. So I did. So all I did was jerk off and train. I thought after that, I'd become the champion. I could get as much money and women as I need. So there were a lot of golden nuggets that Mike dropped on us uh, with his experience training with Cuss. I want to talk about desire a little bit. Naval Ravikant has a quote, and it's based off the noble truths of Buddhism, that a desire is a contract for suffering. For every desire that you have, there is inherent suffering associated with it. So, for example, if you desire for some McDonald's, just as a random example. So, let's think about what sufferings are associated with that. One, there, there's a cost, even if it is marginal, there's, there is a cost associated with it. There is the suffering in having to wait for it, having to get it. Um, there's suffering in the negative health consequences associated with it. And I think oftentimes we don't think about the suffering associated with the desires we have, and especially in the society we live in today. We are just constantly stimulated with desires. At any given moment on any social platform, there's some advertisement trying to hook you, trying to elicit desire out of you. I think it's important to be aware of our desires, not only from the perspective of capitalistic, and he's trying to get a buck out of you, but even the relationships we have. We experience mimesis where we don't know what we desire. We desire what other people desire because we are inherently insecure. It's the keeping up with the Joneses or keeping up with the Kardashians effect that we often see. Your neighbor gets a new car. You suddenly want a new car. Even though your car is fairly new, your car is functional. Nothing's wrong with it. But that desire is there. Your friend gets a new phone. You want a new phone. And these desires can often cloud our perspectives on what we want. So let's say, you have a big goal in your mind. And let's say that goal is you want to start a company. But you find that in the process of trying to do it, you're lazy or motivation isn't there, but you really, really want it. I think it's important to then understand what else do you desire in your life? Because in that moment of being lazy. It's not that you're lazy. It's that you desire not to suffer in the process. You desire not to do the work more so than you desire the actual outcome. And as I mentioned, there's so many desires in our lives. This understanding of desire applies to all aspects of our life. 
Jordan Peterson has a famous quote where you need to choose your suffering. Regardless of what desires you have, you will suffer because you'll end up chasing a desire you don't understand. So by choosing your suffering, you're choosing the exact desires you have, the ones that you commit to, the ones that you believe are worth going after. So here's an exercise that I believe will really help clarify things and clarify your life in regards to getting what you want. Write down every single little mundane desire you have. And when I mean mundane, it could be the silliest of things. It could be, I want a haircut right now. I want to trim my nails right now. It could be the silliest of things. When I did it, I, I came out to about like 300, 400 desires. Go through and filter out what are the useless, the desires are less applicable, and also rank them from orders of things I need to do now versus things are of lower priority. Obviously, at some point, you got to get your hair cut, you got your nails trimmed, but odds are you don't have to do it right now in this very given moment. What you'll also find is a lot of desires cross with each other. So for example, maybe you have a desire to go out and maybe you have a desire to go out and meet a girl, but you also desire to just easily get a girl, right? Where you don't have to put any work, you know, she just comes over and everything's perfect. In reality, those two desires can't coexist. They inherently cross with each other. You can't do one without putting the work in. It's like the one wanting to go to the gym and not train to get a specific outcome that they were looking for. And I believe a lot of people experience cognitive dissonance when they have desires that are inherently crossed with each other. So go through this exercise and figure out what you truly want. And if you can, bring it down to like five or 10 things. That'll really help sharpen things up because let's say your number one goal is to improve your cardiovascular health. When you're on the treadmill or you're on the bike or whatever, and you get tired in that moment, you can go back to your desire chart and you can say, I desire to improve my cardiovascular health more than I desire to quit right now and relax. That'll help clarify things. My sparring sessions were like an all-out war. Before we fought, Cus would take me aside. You don't take it easy. You go out there and you do your best, he'd say. You do everything you learned and you do it at full speed. I want you to break those guys' ribs. Break their ribs sparring? We fought to hurt people. We didn't fight just to win. We talked for hours about hurting people. This is what Cus instilled in me. You'll be sending a message to the champ. So now you might be thinking, you know what, this information is useless for me. I don't want to hurt anyone. Let's extract the essence from that comment. What Cus is telling him, when there does come a point in which your mind does ease up, you've been training and practicing at such a high intensity that when you are executing or doing whatever you're trying to do, even if your mind does calm down, the intensity in which your mind calms down is still higher than that of the average person who works lackadaisically. Besides watching old fight films, I devoured everything I could read on these great fighters. Soon after I moved in with Cuss, I was reading the boxing encyclopedia and started laughing, reading about a champion who had only held his title for a year. Cuss looked at me with his cold, piercing eyes and said, a one-year championship is worth more than a lifetime 
of obscurity. When I started studying the lives of these great old boxers, I saw a lot of similarity to what Cuss was preaching. They were all mean motherfuckers. I trained myself to be wicked. I used to walk to school, snapping at everybody. Deep down, I knew I had to be like that, because if I failed, Cuss would get rid of me and I'd starve to death. Cuss had given me a book to read. What struck me was how hard these old-time fighters worked, how hungry they were. I read that John L. Sullivan would train by running five miles, and then he'd walk back five miles and spar for 20 rounds. Ezra Charles said he only ran for three to four miles a day and then boxed six rounds. I thought, damn, Sullivan trained harder in the 1880s than this guy did in the 1950s? So I started walking four miles to the gym, did my sparring, and then, would ba- and then would walk back to the house. I started emulating the old guys because they were hardcore. They had long careers. I was serious about my boxing history because I learned so much from the old fighters. The following line is something that we should be using with our study in the GOAT pod. I was serious about my history because I learned so much from the old fighters. What did I have to do to be like this guy? What discipline did this other guy possess? This would tell me about how vicious and mean they were outside the ring. But when they were in it, they were relaxed and calm. We talked about all the greats. I fell in love with Jack Johnson. What a courageous guy. He was the first real black pride guy. He really means flashy in this situation. And I loved this arrogance. He got pulled over for speeding at the turn of a century. And the ticket was like 10 bucks. And he gave the cop 20 and said, why don't you take this 20? Because I'm going to be coming back the same way I'm going. He was a master of manipulation. When he was training, he'd wrap his penis before he put on his tights to make it look larger and give the white guys an inferiority complex. He'd humiliate his opponents during fights. He was the original trash talker. I'll give you $10,000 if you cut my lip, he'd say. He'd laugh in the face of his opponents during a round, talk to his white wife, and tell her how much he loved her while he was beating the shit out of the guy he was fighting. I related to him the most because he was a really insecure guy. He was always afraid, but he always overcame these feelings to reach his goal. Cuss loved Henry Armstrong the most. He would constantly attack his opponents and wear them down. Constant attack, no let up, Cuss told me, moving his head with good defense. That's what Armstrong would do. Break his opponent's will, destroy his spirit, make all his causes a lie. Make all his causes a lie? Whoa. And then Cuss would stare at me. If you listen to me, You'll reign with the gods. See the way you're interested in talk about all these old fighters? By the time you're champ, if you listen to me, the only reason people would know about these guys was because you talk about them. You'd supersede all of them. You'll make them forget about everyone. I watched Jack Dempsey as a boy. I've met these guys, shook their hands. They're not what you are. You are a giant. You are a colossus amongst men. The greats could fight the best of their fight, even if someone had just kidnapped their child or killed their mother. Greats are totally emotionally independent. Performers are like that too, not just boxers. They couldn't even walk, but they had great discipline and determination. Sometimes they go directly from the arena to the hospital. I wanted to be one of those fighters and performers.
I don't think that Cus thought that in a thousand years he'd get another champion, although he hoped he would. Most of the men who came up there were already established fighters who wanted to get away from the girls and the temptations of the city. Plus, no one liked Cus's boxing style at the time. They thought it was outdated. Then I show up there, knowing nothing, a blank chalkboard. Cus was happy. I couldn't understand why this white man was so happy about me. He'd look at me and just laugh hysterically. He'd get on the phone and tell people, Lightning has struck me twice. I have another heavyweight champion. I'd never seen an amateur fight in my life. I have no idea how, but somehow he saw it in me. Right before my first fight, I was so scared that I almost left. I was thinking about all the preparation I'd undergone with Cuss, even after all the sparring. I was still totally intimidated with fighting somebody in the ring. What if I failed and lost? I had been in a million street fights on the street of Brooklyn, but this was a whole different kind of feeling. You don't know the guy you're fighting. You have no beef with him. I was there with Teddy Atlas, my trainer, and I told him that I was going down to the store for a second. I went downstairs and sat on the curb by the steps leading up to the subway. For a few minutes, I thought I should get on the damn train and should go back to Brownsville. But then all of Cuss's teachings started flowing into my mind, and I started to relax, and my pride and my ego started popping up. And I got up and walked back to the gym. It was on. I was fighting this big Puerto Rican guy with a huge afro. He was 18, four years older than me. We fought hard for two rounds, but in the third round, I knocked him into the bottom rope and followed with another shot that literally knocked his mouthpiece six rows back into the crowd. He was out cold. I was ecstatic. It was love at first sight. I didn't know how to celebrate, so I stepped on him. I raised my arms up in the air and stepped on the prone motherfucker. Those smokers, so like these small matches, meant so much to me. A lot more than the rest of the kids. The way I looked at it, I was born in hell. Every time I fought, and every time I won a fight, that was just one step out of it. The other fighters weren't as mean as I was. If I hadn't had these smokers, I probably would have died in the sewers. I won all my regionals, so Teddy and I flew to Colorado, and Cus took a train because he was afraid of flying. When I entered the dressing room, I remembered how all my heroes had behaved. The other kids would come up to me and put out their hands to shake, and I would just sneer and turn my back on them. I was playing a role. Someone would be talking, and I'd just stare at him. Cuss was all about manipulating your opponent by causing chaos and confusion, but staying cool under it all. I caused such chaos that a few of the other fighters took one look at me and lost their bouts, so they wouldn't have to fight me later on. I won all my fights by knockouts in the first round. I won the gold by knocking Cor- Joe Cortez out in 8 seconds. A record I believe still stands to this day. I was on my way. So the next few to sentences um, are quite self-explanatory. I didn't care about what school was teaching me, but I did have an urge to learn. So Cuss would encourage me, and I read some of the books from his library. I read books by Oscar Wilde, Charles Darwin, Machiavelli, Tolstoy, Dumas, Adam Smith. I read a book about Alexander the Great. I loved history. By reading history, I learned about human nature. I learned the hearts of men. And as the famous David Senra quote goes, history doesn't repeat itself. Human nature does. One day, I got into a fight at school and Cus had to go smooth things over. When he got back, he sat me down. 
you're going to have to leave here if you continue to act like that. I just broke down and started crying. Please don't let me go, I sobbed. I want to stay. I really loved the family environment Cuss had given me, and I was madly in love with Cuss. He was the first white guy who not only didn't judge me, but who wanted to beat the shit out of someone if they said anything disrespectful about me. Nobody could reach me like that guy. He reached down into my cortex, and any time I finished talking to him, I had to go and burn energy. Shadow boxing or doing sit-ups, I was so pumped. I started running, and I'd be crying because I wanted to make him happy and prove that all the good things he was saying were right. From that moment on, I became his slave. If he told me to kill someone, I would have killed them. I'm serious. Everyone thought I was up there with this old, sweet Italian guy, but I was there with the warrior, and I loved every minute of it. I was happy to be Cuss's soldier. It gave me a purpose in life. I liked being the one to complete the mission. I started training even harder, if that was possible. When I got home from the gym, I actually had to crawl up the stairs. I'd make my way up to the third floor bathroom. Cuss would run some incredibly hot water into the little porcelain tub and then pour some Epsom salts in. Stay in as long as you can, Cuss would say. So I'd sit down, get burned, but the next morning my body would feel so much better and I'd go back out and work again. I never felt so glorious in my life. I had a tunnel vision mission and I never deterred from it. I can't even explain that feeling to other people. When all the other fighters would leave the gym and go out with their girlfriends, living their life, Cuss and I went back to the house and devised our scheme. We talked about having houses in all parts of the world, Cuss would say. No will be like a foreign language to you. You won't understand the concept of no. I thought that it was unfair for the rest of the fighters trying to win the championship because I was raised by a genius who prepared me. Those other guys wanted to make money and have a good life for their family. But thanks to Cuss, I wanted glory. I wanted to get it over their blood, but I was insecure. I wanted glory. I wanted to be famous. I wanted the world to look at me and tell me I'm beautiful. I was a fat fucking stinking kid. I used to ask Cuss, what does it mean being the greatest fighter of all time? Most of those guys are dead. Listen, they're dead, but we're talking about them now. This is all about immortality. This is about your name being known until the end of time. These last few sentences remind me of a clip from a high-performance coach named Kapil Gupta, who was a mentor of Naval Ravikant. And he has a phrase that says, competition is for losers. Let's dissect that a little bit. What Kapil Gupta says is that when you compete with another individual, your mind will only work as so hard to just beat the person ahead of you. The example he gives is during Usain Bolt's famous world championship breaking 100 meter run. At the end of the run, you see Usain relax and he jogs the end. And you may be thinking to yourself, I don't want immortality. I don't give a fuck about that. But it makes a lot of sense where instead of competing with other people, you set a goal so far ahead of just winning that even if you do lose, even if you never hit that goal, you'll still end up being better than everyone else because you're not competing just to slightly be better than everyone else. You're fighting. So 
you can set a benchmark for yourself. Who is Michael Jordan competing with? Who is Tiger Woods competing with? Nobody. They obviously had greats they were looking up to, but they had a level that they were trying to achieve by themselves, a potential no one saw. There's a famous saying, talent is hitting the target nobody else can hit, while genius is hitting the target no one else can see. In November of 1981, Teddy, me, and two other fighters got in the car and drove to Rhode Island for a smoker. For the whole ride, I was thinking about what I was going to do to the motherfucker when I got there. I had been reading Nietzsche and thought I was Superman. So I was visualizing how I was going to electrify the place and how all the people would be applauding me when I kicked the guy's ass. My delusion had me believing that the crowd would be throwing flowers at my feet. The place was packed. There were at least 3,000 people there. We got into the ring, and it was nine straight minutes of mayhem. To this day, people still talk about that fight. The crowd never stopped cheering. Even during the one-minute rest between the rounds they were applauding, we were like two pit bulls. He was very smooth and elusive and experienced, but then bam, I knocked him through the ropes. I fought this guy hard right to the end. It was the best performance of my life. And then they gave him the decision. It was highway robbery. I was distraught. I was crying. I'd never lost a fight before. In the dressing room, his trainer came up to me. I was still crying. You're just a baby, he said. My man has had many fights. We were fighting you, everything we got. You're better than my fighter. Don't give up. You're going to be champion one day. That didn't make me feel any better. I cried the whole ride home. I wanted to beat that guy so bad. We got, we got back home and I had to get in the shower to go to school. I heard you did great. Teddy said the guy was cut and experienced. Cuss said, hey, take the day off. You don't have to go to school. There was no way I was not going to school. That guy had given me a black eye and I wanted to show off my badge of courage. I didn't let that controversial loss get me down. I kept fighting at smokers and knocking out each of my opponents. Do you remember the story I mentioned of Giannis and crying? There's something about the visceral emotion associated with an obsession where you are very childlike in that part. And I think it's part of one's development to eventually be able to separate their emotion from it, just like Giannis does. And eventually, same thing with Tyson as well. But in the starting process, there is something to that obsession. Like I said in last week's episode, you're like a child, right? Where a when a child wants something, they don't get it. Almost like there's a C between them trying to get something and where they are right now, and they feel helpless in that process. This would often say, my boy's business is to put big, strong, scary men in their place. Oh, I heard that in my heart. Oh, I would turn into fucking hot blue fire. I got so pumped up that I wanted to fight those guys before we even got into the ring. Whenever I displayed the slightest bit of humanity to fight, cuss would be all over me. A guy might try to shake my hand before a fight in a gesture of sportsmanship. If I took it, cuss went ballistic. Cuss was all about psychological warfare. He believed 90% of boxing was psychological and not physical. Will, not skill. When I was 15, he began taking me to a hypnotherapist named John Halpin. He had an office on Central Park West in the city. 
I'd lie down on the floor of John's office and we'd go through all the stages of relaxation, your head, your eyes, your arms, your legs, all getting heavy. Once I was under, he'd tell me whatever Cuss wanted him to say. Cuss would write out the suggestions on a piece of paper and John would recite them out loud. You're the world's greatest fighter. I'm not telling you this because I'm I'm trying to make you believe something that you're not. I'm telling you this because you can actually do this. This is what you were born to do. Halpin showed us a method by which we could put ourselves into a hypnotic state anytime we wanted. When we were back up in Catskill, I'd lie down on the floor in my bedroom and Cuss would be sitting next to me. I'd start to relax and go into my hypnotic state and Cuss would talk to me. Sometimes he'd talk in generalities like I was the best fighter in the world. But sometimes it would be specifics. Your jab is like a weapon. You throw punches that are ferocious with bad intentions. You have a wonderful right hand. You haven't believed in it yet, but now you will. You're a scourge from God. The world will know your name from now until the eons of oblivion. It was some deep shit. and I believed it. I thought this was a secret method that was going to help me. Some people might think it was crazy, but I believed everything Cus was telling me. I embraced it religiously. Cuss was my god, and this old white guy was telling me that I was the apex? Why did I have to be the best that ever existed? There's this quote Cuss told Mike, and I want to share it. It's a little bit out of the flow. Look at the champions you've read in all these books. At some times early in their careers, a number of them suffered knockout losses, but they never gave up. They endured, and that's why you're reading about them. The ones who lost and quit, well, their demons will follow them to their grave because they had the chance to face them and they didn't. You have to face your demons, Mike, or they will follow you to eternity. Remember to always be careful how you fight your fights because the way you fight your fights will be the way that you live your life. I really wanted to include this quote because it's something I've been trying to personally implement in my life. I think I'm taking this from Chris Williamson's podcast, but there's an importance in upholding the promises that you keep to yourself. The promises that you keep to yourself is the evidence and the proof in which you are what you say you are. So for example, let's say that you, in the beginning of the day, you decide that you're going to go for a 40-minute run. And in that run, at minute, let's say, 15, you decide, you know what? I'm kind of tired today. I don't feel like doing it. I've been training really hard this week. I should probably cut it quits. There's an inoculation occurring in that moment where if you give in to your mind at that point, you're essentially telling yourself, you're training yourself that anytime something occurs, you can break a promise to yourself. So something I've been trying to practice is when I commit to something for myself, it doesn't matter how I feel in the moment, I will execute until the end. Even if I stress my body a little bit more than I should, it's so that I'm staying consistent with the internal promises I'm making to myself. And for a long part of my life, I couldn't keep promises to myself. I'd often say like, oh, you know what? I'm going to get X amount of hours of work done. And I wouldn't. And eventually those broken promises accumulate. And 
if you can't stay accountable to yourself, how can you stay accountable to anybody else? You're living a facade in that sense. And I'm not going to lie, like, like things aren't perfect to this day, but they are getting better. And I'm able to at least be consistent with myself and I can consistently keep promises to myself. No man has the right to be an amateur in the matter of physical training. It is a shame for a man to grow old without seeing the beauty and strength of which his body is capable of. Socrates. A common theme we find in studying legends and conquerors is the maximization in all dimensions of their life. If you haven't mastered your physique yet, work with myself and my team at MileCoach. MileCoach is a men's lifestyle training company with accountability being our number one focus. We take a data-driven approach to improve your exercise, nutrition, supplementation, and sleep. So you're able to have what you rightfully deserved this whole time. Power. There's a link in the description below, or check us out at our website, myocoach.com. Enjoy the rest of the show. Cuss had an interesting psychological tactic in which he applied with Mike. It was a contrast of inflating his ego, but then popping the balloon from time to time. Cuss was furious when I came home. This must be some good stuff, Mike, referring to Mike smoking some weed. I know this must be good because you just let down 400 years of slaves and peasants to smoke it. He broke my spirit that day. He made me feel like an Uncle Tom, black dude. Uncle Tom just refers to a black slave who was very obedient to uh, his master. And he hated those kind of people. He knew how to bring me to my lowest point. So I was sitting in the theater, remembering that, and sinking deeper and deeper into my depression. And then I started crying. The whole trip, I knew I had to immediately throw myself back into full-blown training for professional fighting. I had to be spectacular when I turned pro. They're never going to see anyone like Tyson, I said to myself. He will transcend the game. He will be in the pantheon of great fighters alongside John L. Sullivan, Joe Lewis, Benny Leonard, and Joe Gons, and the rest. Tyson is magnificent. I was completely pumped up when I got off the train and took a cab to Cuss's house. The world was about to see a fighter the likes of which they had never seen before. I was going to transcend the game with all due respect and not to be arrogant, but I was conscious of my future prominence as a boxer then. I knew nothing could stop me and I would be the champion as surely as Friday would come after Thursday. I didn't lose a fight for the next six years. So going back to the whole popping of a, his ego, man, I wish you had a body like Mike Weaver or Ken Norton, he'd say out of the blue, because you'd be real intimidating. You'd have an ominous aura. They don't have the temperament, but they have the physique of an intimidating man. You could paralyze other boxers with fear just by the way you look. I got choked up. To this day, when I recount the story, I still choke up. I was offended and hurt, but I wouldn't tell Cuss because then he'd say, oh, you're crying? What are you, a little baby? How can you handle a big-time fight if you don't have the emotional toughness? Anytime I showed my emotions, he despised it, so I held back my tears. Don't worry, cuss. I made myself sound arrogant. You watch. One day, the world is going to be afraid of me. When they mention my name, they'll sweat blood, cuss. That was the day I turned into Iron Mike. I became that guy 100%. Kobe and the Black Mamba, even Giannis last week and developing that Westbrook mean mug. 
a lot of these individuals understand that they themselves can't change. They can't change their current self. So by creating this alter ego, the second self, they're able to change their behaviors. They're able to change their persona to match someone who isn't their current self. And Mike mentioned this earlier, right? When he talked about like him talking negatively to people outside and then being calm in the ring, it was a rule is what he said. And that's what Iron Mike was. Mike was an absolute savage. Don't get me wrong. But to get into that mode, he had to recall on a darker part of himself, the shadow of himself, if we think about Jungian psychology. And that's the beauty of the alter ego. It gives you an excuse to use that shadow self. It lets that shadow self take over. It's almost like we all have a natural bipolar personality to us a Jekyll and Hyde of sorts. But we can use that, we can leverage that in positive ways. If you grew up insecure, if you grew up scared, the darker parts of you can be utilized in productive ways. As Jordan Peterson says, it's not the meek who inherit the world. It's those who have swords and have them sheathed that inherit the world. It's those that know how to control their dark parts. And that's where the alter ego comes in. Even though I'd been winning almost every one of my fights in an exciting fashion, I wasn't completely emotionally invested in being the savage that Cuss wanted me to be. After that talk about me being too small, I became that savage. I even began to fantasize that if I could actually kill somebody inside the ring, it would certainly intimidate everyone. Cuss wanted an anti-social champion, so I drew on the bad guys from the movies, guys like Jack Palance and Richard Widmark. I immersed myself in the role of the arrogant sociopath. Just like I was talking about last week with the second self, you look at the heroes that you want to emulate. And you use those characteristics, those traits in developing your alter ego and developing your second self. At this point, he signed a pro contract and he's begun his pro career and he's a little famous now. Eventually, I met all those New York social scenesters. But even meeting all these superstars didn't validate my own sense of having made it. That didn't happen until I met the wrestler, Bruno Sammartino. I was a huge wrestling fan growing up. I loved San Martino and Gorilla Monsoon and Billy Graham. One night, I went to a party where I met Tom Cruise, who was just starting out. At the same event, I saw Bruno San Martino. I was totally starstruck. I just stared at him. Someone introduced us, and he had no idea who I was. But I started recounting to him all the great matches I'd seen him participate in against people like Killer Kowalski, Nikolai Volkov, George the Animal Steel. In my sick mind, my megalomaniac mind, I was thinking, this is a sign of my greatness. My hero is with me. I'm going to be great like him and win the championship. I was almost too focused then. I didn't live in reality. I was interviewed for Sports Illustrated and it said, what bothers me most is being around people who are having a lot of fun with parties and stuff like that. It makes you soft. People who are interested in having fun cannot accomplish anything. 
I thought I was stronger than people who were weak in partying. I wanted to be in that Columbus celebrity world, but I was fighting that temptation to party. Cuss was later admitted to a hospital. Cuss was sitting in his bed eating ice cream. We talked for a few minutes and then Cuss asked Steve to leave the room so he could talk to me in private. And that's when he told me he was dying from pneumonia. I couldn't believe what he was telling me. He didn't look morbidly ill. He was buffing. He had energy and zest. He was eating ice cream and he was chilling, but I started freaking out. I don't want to do this shit without you, I said, choking back tears. I, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Well, if you don't fight, you realize that people can come back from the grave because I'm going to haunt you for the rest of your life. I told him, okay. And then he took my hand. The world has to see you, Mike. You're going to be champion of the world. The greatest out there, he said. And then Cuss started crying. This was the first time I ever saw him cry. I thought he was crying because he wouldn't see me become a heavyweight champion after all we had gone through together. But soon, I realized he was crying over Camille. I totally forgot he had another partner who meant more to him than me. He told me he regretted he had never married Camille because he had tax problems and he didn't want her to take them on. Mike, just do me one favor, he said. Make sure you take care of Camille. I left the room in shock. Later that day, Jimmy came by to get me to go into the bank to deposit a check for 120k for my last fights. But now, my name was in the papers and I was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and strangers were stopping me on the street and wishing me well. I was out there, cocky, good-looking. I knew all the girls in the bank, and normally I'd flirt with them, and they'd flirt back. But right before we walked in the bank, Jimmy stopped. Cuss is not going to make it through the night, Mike. They say he has a few hours to live. I just started crying. Like it was the end of the world. It was. My world is gone. All the girls at the bank were staring at me. Is there a problem? The manager came up to us. We just heard that a dear friend of ours is dying. And Mike is taking it very hard, Jimmy said. He was cool and collected, just like that. Boom. No emotion. Just the way Cuss trained him to be. Meanwhile, I was crying like I lost a soldier on a mission without a general. They had Cuss's funeral upstate. I was one of Cuss's pallbearers. Everybody from the boxing world came. It was sad. In my sick head, all I could think about was to succeed for him. I would have done anything to win that title to ensure Cuss's legacy. I started feeling sorry for myself. Thinking about, thinking that without Cuss, I would have a shitty life. Camille was very composed, but when we got back to the house, we cried together. I shut down emotionally after Cuss died. I got really mean. I was trying to prove myself. Show that I was a man, not just a boy. Even though I was functioning, I'd lost my spirit, my belief in myself. I lost all my energy to do anything good. I don't think I'd ever get over his death. I was also mad at him when he died. I was so bitter. If he'd only gotten to the doctors earlier, he would have been alive to protect me.
but he wanted to be stubborn. So he didn't get treated and he died and he left me out there alone for these animals in the boxing world to take advantage of me. After Cus died, I didn't care about anything anymore. I was basically fighting for the money. I didn't really have a dream. It'd be good to win the title, but I wanted to just get some wine, have some fun, party, and get fucked up. After the fight, John Condon, the head of boxing at MSG, who's doing the color commentary, asked me what a typical day in the life of Mike Tyson was. Mike Tyson is a hardworking fighter that leads a boring life as an individual. Anyone who says, I wish I was in your shoes, the hundreds of people who say that don't know the tenth of it. If they were in my shoes, they would cry like babies. They couldn't handle it. That night, I celebrated my victory with some friends. About 8 o'clock the next morning, I knocked at Camille's door. She opened it, and I went inside and sat down. I didn't say anything. How'd you make it out? Camille asked me. I made it out good. But I was looking for somebody who wasn't there. And tears started rolling down my cheeks. Cuss wasn't there. Everybody tells me I'm doing good. I'm doing good. But nobody tells me if I do bad. It doesn't matter how good I would have done. Cuss would have probably seen something I did wrong. I expanded on the way I was feeling when I interviewed for Sports Illustrated that week. I miss Cuss terribly. He was my backbone. All the things we worked on, they're starting to come out so well. But when it comes down to it, who really cares? I like doing my job, but I'm not happy being victorious. I fight my heart out. Give it my best. But when it's over, there's no cuss to tell me how I did. No mother to show my clippings to. After another fight, he was uh, talking to a reporter and it ended up starting some controversy because of a quote he said. I wanted to hit him on the nose one more time so that the bone of his nose would go up into his brain. I would always listen to the doctor's conclusions. They said anytime that the nose goes into the brain, the consequences of him getting up right away are out of the question. The reporters laughed, but maybe it was just a nervous laugh. What I said to the reporters was what Cuss used to say to me word for word. I didn't think anything I said was wrong. Cuss and I always used to talk about the science of hurting people. I wanted to be a cantankerous, malevolent champion. I used to watch these comic book characters on TV, the X-Men, and one of my favorites, Apocalypse would say, I'm not malevolent, I just am. Remember, this is a role that he's playing. His true day-to-day personality isn't like this. And he talks about it. It is quite insecure. But the role he's playing helps him develop Iron Mike, his alter ego, so that when he is in the ring, that savage can come out. The next day, the shit hit the fan because of my comment. New York papers had big headlines that read, is this real Tyson a thug? One reporter even called up my own my old social worker, Mrs. Coleman, and she advised me to be a man, not an animal. But I didn't care. I had a job to do. I wasn't going to be Mike Tyson, the new heavyweight champion, by being a nice guy. I was going to do it in Cuss's name. Also, why the fuck are they asking an old social worker? It's not like a social worker knows shit about boxing. His managers, Jimmy and Caden. They tried to muzzle me after that. There was a sense of desperation behind Caden and Jimmy to get me a title before I got into serious trouble. But that wasn't what it was. I think they just wanted to grab the money while they could. They didn't have respect for the mission I was on. 
Caden and the rest of them would strip me of my history of growing up in Brooklyn and give me a positive image. Cussing you, that was bullshit. They were trying to suppress me and make me conform to their standards. I wanted people to see the savage that was within me. We partied after the Ferguson fight. I was drinking heavily during that time, not during training, but once the fight was over, it was self-destruction time. I was a full-blown alcoholic, but I drank away from the glare of all the media in the city. That was almost two months before my fight with James Tillis in upstate New York. When it was time for the fight, I was out of shape because I had been drinking and partying way too hard. The fight went hard 10 rounds, and I was glad to just get the decision. I dropped him once, which probably tipped the scales in my favor, but he was the toughest opponent I'd faced at that point. He gave me such a bad body beating that I couldn't even walk after the fight. I had to stay in the hotel. I couldn't even drive home. I found out what fighting was really that night. Several times during the fight, I wanted to go down so bad just to get some relief, but I kept grabbing and holding him, trying to get my breath back. After the Tillis fight, I was back to my usual arrogant self. Not to be egotistical, but I won that fight so easy. I refused to be beaten in there. I refused to let anybody get in my way, I told the press. And this is exactly the role he's playing. It's contrasting from like what he's actually saying, where he's like, that fight was brutal. He was out of breath and he wanted to give up many times. But he's staying within the development of his second self. He's creating this false reality so that when he's in the ring, he won't be scared. I'd suffered from bronchitis my entire life and I'd gotten used to it. But at this point, it's got, it was a severe case. His managers took him to the doctor and the doctors examined him. I'm afraid I'm going to have to postpone this fight. He's pretty ill, the doctor said. Can I talk to you for a moment, please, sir? Jimmy said. I could see the look in Jimmy's eyes, and the next thing I knew, I was in the ring fighting. In the first round, I hit Gross with a flurry of punches and he was covering up. Suddenly, he decided to start trading punches, which was fine with me. He threw a bunch of wild punches that I dodged, and then I knocked him down with a vicious left hook, and then knocked him down a second time with a succession of punches. The ref stopped the fight because Gross was glassy-eyed. Reggie complained. You can't even walk, but you want to fight, the ref said. Later, some of his heroes would actually get uh, interviewed, and they had the following to say. Without a doubt, the next heavyweight champion of the world, Jake said when he came out and hugged me. And if he doesn't do the right thing, I'll give him a beating. You keep it up, pal. You're going to be just like Joe Lewis, Marciano, maybe even better. My heart soared when I heard that. And then Brenner asked Jake a question. Let's say Mike becomes champ. What advice would you give him? My best advice I could give him is keep to yourself and keep busy. Believe you're in jail for a couple years, Jake said. Stay away from all the garbage out there. There's a lot of garbage out there. Why does it have to be garbage, I asked. Unfortunately, guys like you and I, we attract garbage, he said. On the day of the championship fight, I had some pasta at one o'clock. At four, I had some steak and then some more pasta at five. In the dressing room, I had a Snicker bars and some OJ. I was the challenger, so I had to go at first. They were playing a Toto song for my entrance, but all I could hear in my mind was that Phil Collins song, In the Air Tonight. I can feel it coming in the air tonight. Oh Lord, I've been waiting for this moment all my life. Oh Lord. I went through the ropes and I started pacing around the ring. I looked at the crowd and I saw Kirk Douglas, Eddie Murphy, and Sylvester Stallone. 
A few minutes later, Burbick entered wearing a black robe and a black hood. He was projecting cockiness and confidence, but I could feel that was all a facade, an illusion. I knew that this guy wasn't going to die for his belt. Ali was introduced to the crowd, and he came over to me. Kick his ass for me, Ali told me. Five years earlier, Ali had been beaten by Burbick and retired after that fight, so I was more than happy to comply. That's going to be easy, I assured Mohammed. Finally, it was time to fight. The bell rang, and referees Mills Lane motioned us into action. I charged Burbick and began peppering him with hard shots. I couldn't believe that he wasn't moving and he wasn't jabbing. He was standing right there in front of me. I threw a right hand near the beginning of the fight, square on his left ear, trying to bust his eardrum. About halfway through the round, I staggered him with a hard right. I swarmed him and by the end of the fight, Burbick was dazed. He'd really taken some really good shots. Move your head. Don't forget to jab. Kevin said, you're headhunting. Go for the body first. 10 seconds into the second round, I hit him with the right and Burbick went down. He sprung up immediately and came back right at me. He was trying to fight back, but his punches were ineffective. With about a minute or so left in the round, I hit him with the right to the body instead of an uppercut. And then I shot the uppercut, but I missed him. I threw a left and hit him in the temple. It was a delayed reaction, but he went down. I didn't even feel the punch, but it was so effective. He tried to get up, but then he fell back down. And I noticed that his ankle was all bent. No way he's going to get up and beat the count, I thought. And I was right. He tried to get up a second time, and he lurched across the canvas and flopped down. He finally got up, but Mills Lane hugged him and waved him off. That was it. I was the youngest heavyweight champion in history. I can't believe this. Man, I'm the fucking champion of the world at 20. This fucking shit is unreal. Champion of the world at 20? I'm a kid, a fucking kid. And then I looked out over the audience and started to feel arrogant. Yeah, we did it, I thought. Me and Cuss did it. And then I started talking to Cuss. We did it. We proved all those guys wrong. I bet Burbick didn't think I'm too short, does he? And then I realized Cuss would have hated the way I fought. Everything else you did in the ring was garbage, I heard him say in my head. But the ending was resounding, and that's all people will remember. It was time for the post-fight interviews. I had to acknowledge Cuss. I was the best fighter in the world at that time, and I was his creation. Cuss needed to be there. He would have loved to have told off those people who wrote him off as a kook. He would have said, nobody can beat my boy. He's only 20, but nobody in the world can beat him. This is the moment I waited for my whole life since I started boxing, I said when the press conference started. Burbick was very strong. I never expected him to be as strong as me. Every punch I threw was with bad intentions. My record will last for immortality. It'll never be broken. I want to live forever. I refuse to lose. I would have had to be carried out dead to lose. I was coming to destroy and win the heavyweight championship of the world, which I've done. I'd like to dedicate my fight to my great guardian, Customato. I'm sure he's up there and he's looking down and he's talking to all the great fighters and he's saying, his boy did it. I thought he was a crazy white dude. He was a genius. Everything he said would happen, happened. Someone asked me who my next opponent would be. I don't care who I fight next, I said. If I'm going to be great, then I'm going to have to fight everybody. I want to fight everybody. I was lost. By the time I won the belt, 
I was truly a wrecked soul because I didn't have any guidance. I didn't have cuss. I had to win the belt for cuss. We were going to do that or else we were going to die. There wasn't any way I was leaving that ring without the belt. All that sacrifice, suffering, dedication, sacrifice, suffering, day by day, in every way. When I finally got back to my hotel room early that morning, I looked at myself in the mirror wearing that belt, and I realized that I accomplished our mission, and now I was free. But then I remembered reading something Lenin wrote in one of Cuss's books. Freedom is a very dangerous thing. We ration it very closely. That was a statement I should have taken into consideration in the years that followed. That's a wrap for part one of the game tape of Mike Tyson. The book by Mike Tyson is linked below in the show notes. Uh, Purchasing the book with the link will help support the podcast. Thanks for reviewing the game tape with me. Stay tuned for next week's part two of where we talk about the anti-model of what not to do, where we can tie in the extraction of the development of brutality, but also not lose our way in the process of doing so. Enjoy the rest of your day and keep going.